It's great to be with you all today. Uh, I bring greetings from the saints at Trinity Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, we're grateful to be in fellowship with you. Uh, of course, we're also uh, very sad to have to say goodbye to Jimmy and to the Gill family, but we're very excited for you uh, as you're going to be on the receiving end of, tr- of a tremendous blessing uh, as Jimmy's, Jimmy's ministry uh, is now yours. Uh, we're very happy for you all because of what today means in the life of your church. One faithful man being succeeded by another faithful man. I know that you all have been grateful for Pastor Wilding's ministry uh, here over the years. He has served you well. He has served you faithfully. Uh, and I know you're also eager and ready to uh, welcome Pastor Gill as your new pastor uh, and it's really a beautiful picture here that we have today of God raising up men to lead his church. I think it's rare for a church to get to make this kind of seamless transition where a retiring pastor uh, on his last Sunday, uh, you also have the installation of the new pastor, the successor. Uh, so truly God has been faithful to you all. Truly uh, God has been good to Christ's Redeemer. Uh, given this kind of transition that's taking place, uh, I thought Joshua chapter 1 would be a fitting passage for us to look at this morning uh, because it is about a transition in leadership in the nation of Israel. Moses has led the people faithfully for a generation. Uh, now Joshua uh, will take the reins and will be Moses' successor. Uh, Joshua will enter into his role as the nation's leader. And as Joshua is preparing to uh, take charge of the nation, God gives him a series of directions, series of directions or instructions, things Joshua needs to know as he takes on this role of leadership. Leadership is vital to the health of God's people. That's why God has so much to say in his word to the men who lead his church. Not just passages like this here in Joshua, but even whole letters in the New Testament, like First and Second Timothy and Titus, written to the leaders, to the men who lead the church. These are the kinds of things that every leader needs to know. The kinds of things every leader needs to do as he begins a new work. So really, we could say here in Joshua 1, God's charge to Joshua is God's charge to Jimmy as well. But understand, this is not just a charge to Jimmy as your new pastor. These are things that all of God's people need to know, especially in a time of transition. This passage charges all of you. It charges all of us. God raises up leaders. For the good of his people, leaders whose way of life is worthy of imitation, leaders who can share their wisdom with us, leaders who can inspire us to do great things for God. The only way for the church to have great leadership is for her people to demand it and to expect it and to support it and to receive it. Leadership is so vital. Uh, G.K. Chesterton once said, I've examined all the parks in all the cities and found no statues of committees. I know sometimes committees are necessary, uh, but committees don't get statues because committees don't lead. Men lead. Leaders lead. And that's why they get the statues. The statues. God raises up men to lead. Uh, People, but I would say men especially, don't follow committees. They don't follow programs. They follow 
other men. That's what they're looking for. Men are always looking for other men they can follow, men they can respect and trust and imitate. Men are transformed through their interactions with other men. It may be a father, it may be a teacher, it may be a boss or a commander or a sergeant or a teacher or a pastor. Successful men are men who have always been mentored by other men. Men are built to operate this way. And that's why men are always looking for another man to lead them. And so God provides. God provides men to lead his church. Men like Pastor Wiley and now Pastor Gill. Pastors and teachers who can mentor and disciple other people and yes, especially other men. God raises up men in his church as leaders to point the way forward. Men who will set an example, who will give themselves sacrificially to and for the church. And that's what God is doing in Joshua chapter 1. With Moses now stepping aside, Moses out of the picture, there is about to be a void of leadership in Israel. But God fills that void by setting aside Joshua as the new leader of the people. And sure, Joshua has big shoes to fill. But here in Joshua chapter 1, the Lord equips Joshua for the task at hand. And so this passage in Joshua 1 really shows us what leadership looks like. Here it is as if God huddles up with Joshua. He's having his conversation with Joshua, giving him instructions as he's about to step into this leadership role. And the Lord describes Joshua's vocation, uh, his, his calling as a leader in three ways, three things Joshua must know and do as the leader of God's people going forward. Three things. First, he must know God's promise of victory. Second, he must know God's pattern for life. And then third, he must know God's presence with him at all times and in all places. So those three things, God's promise of victory, God's pattern for life, and God's presence in all times and places. Let's look at these. God's word to Joshua. First, God's promises. Leaders must lead the way in clinging to God's promises. And so God reiterates to Joshua the promises he's made. What has God promised? You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. God promised the land of Canaan to Abraham and to his descendants. The land would be a, a, a new garden of Eden for the people of Israel, a land flowing with milk and honey a place of sanctuary, a place for worship and rest, a holy land for God's holy people. When God led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he was ready to give them the land right then. So the Israelites sent 12 spies into the land, and Joshua, uh, along with Caleb, were among these spies. But Joshua and Caleb were the only ones who believed who went into the land and then came back with a report and said, yes, the land is ours. God has promised it to us. God will give it to us. Let's go in and take it. But the other 10 spies and indeed the rest of the nation were afraid. They were afraid of the giants and their walled cities. And so for nearly 40 years, they had to wander in the wilderness while that unbelieving generation died off. And now only Caleb and Joshua, that generation, have lived and will get to enter the promised land. Joshua knows he must lead the way by clinging to God's promise by faith. And so now God reiterates his promise to Joshua, a promise given to Abraham back in Genesis 12, a promise that was repeated to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 11. 
You see it there in verses 3 and 4. Every place the sole of your foot will trod, I have given to you. And then God goes on to describe the, the boundaries of the land that God is giving to his people. Now, on Joshua's first day on the job, he knew he was going to have to face those giants and their walled cities. I don't think Jimmy's first day on the job is going to be quite as daunting as that. Uh, I don't think there are any uh, giants in Lake uh, in Live Oak. I don't think I saw a wall around the city when I uh, drove in. But there are still powerful forces that stand in the way of Jimmy's ministry to you. Powerful forces that stand in the way of your church's success. Traditionally, the church has identified these enemies as the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world as it is organized in rebellion against God. The world as it seeks to press us into its mold, tempting us to use sex, money, and power in rebellious ways, dehumanizing ways. The flesh, that enemy that resides within each one of us, the residue of our fallenness, uh, our sinful traits and uh, habits and inclinations that each one of us has to wrestle with and which lead us astray, which keep us from loving God and one another as faithfully and fully as we should. And of course, the devil, Satan himself, the prince of darkness who accuses and deceives. We have enemies to fight, but we also have a promise of victory. God's marching orders for us do not involve conquering a geopolitical nation with swords and spears. The church doesn't fight that kind of war with those kinds of weapons. What we actually find as we come over into the New Testament scriptures is we've got an even greater promise now. The promise has been expanded and our form of warfare, yes, we are called to fight, but our form of warfare has been transformed. What we find in the New Testament scriptures is that God has promised us, not, promised us not just the land, as he promised to Abraham. That was only a down payment, only the first fruits on the real inheritance that God promised to his people. Indeed, as Paul says in Romans chapter 4, ultimately God promised to Abraham the world. That every family, indeed every nation, would be brought into the sphere of Abraham's blessing and would know the forgiveness of God, God's forgiving mercy, and would receive the promised gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the promise that every nation, every family will be made Christ's disciples. Here are some of God's promises, the kinds of promises that Jimmy must cling to, that you must cling to as well. The earth will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, Isaiah 11. Ask of me and I will give the nations for your inheritance, the ends of the earth for your possession, Psalm 2. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before him, Psalm 22. You shall have dominion from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. These boundaries even expanded beyond what God said to Joshua. That's Psalm 72. The nation shall come to your light, king and kings, to the brightness of your rising, Isaiah chapter 60. We see again and again, this is God's purpose. This is God's plan. This is God's promise. God wants every nation, state, city, town, and family disciples. God wants to give his people everywhere our feet trod. Now your feet trod in life of your feet trod here. That means God has promised it to you. God has promised you life oak. If God could give Canaan with its giants into the 
hands of Joshua, the Israelites, God can give you this city. He can give you live oak. God can unfurl the banner of his gospel here in this town. He can set up Christ's kingdom right here in your midst. God can transform your city, your neighbors, the families all around you. God can mend broken families here in Live Oak. God can help those in poverty in Live Oak live productive lives. God can end drug and alcohol abuse here in Live Oak. He can give you honest civic and business leaders here in Live Oak. This town is yours for the taking. It's here, it's yours for the discipling. The promises have been made. The promises have been given. Now go get it. That's God's charge to you. Go get what is yours everywhere your feet trod. It's yours. God gives it to you. And indeed, every Sunday from here on, Pastor Gill is going to lead you into battle. That's what you're doing when you gather here. He's going to lead you into battle so you can claim a little bit more ground for Jesus and his kingdom. The promises of God undergird your pastor's ministry here. They support and ground what you're doing as a church. They drive you forward in your mission in this place. Your ministry as a church is anchored to these promises. Pastor Wilding has been doing this for you. And now Pastor Gill will. And all of you have a part in this. They lead the way, but you must cling to these promises as well. They are your hope. They're your source of comfort and encouragement. Well, second, we have God's pattern. We see this really in verses 7 and 8. God says to Joshua, Be strong and courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you to. Do not turn to the right or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. Do you want to prosper? Do you want to have success? Uh, Do you want to flourish? See, God says to Joshua, if the people are going to flourish, you must flourish. The leadership must flourish. And God really is saying to Joshua, look, if you're going to really be a leader, then you've got to be committed to the flourishing of those you lead. You've got to be committed to their success and their prosperity as well. But here we see the key to all of that. The key to this flourishing is adhering to God's law for pastor and people alike, for the leader and for those who are led. But this is what I find really interesting in God's instruction to Joshua. In order to obey the law, Joshua is going to have to lead the way in being courageous. If Joshua is a coward, the people will be cowards too, like those ten spies were cowards, like the previous generation was full of cowardice. If they're cowards, they're going to fail. But if Joshua is courageous, that courage will be contagious. It will spread to the people and will bring great success and prosperity and flourishing for the people. Note that courage is necessary for obedience. Yes, courage itself is a form of obedience. Courage is a form of obedience in itself, but it is also the prerequisite for other forms of obedience. Verse 7, again, be strong and courageous so that you may observe to do according to the law. Be courageous so that you can obey. That's why three times in this passage, 
God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. That's what a leader needs to hear. Those are the words he needs to have in his ear. Why does a leader need courage? What is this courage? Why is this courage necessary? Well, one reason that leaders need courage is because leaders lead the way into battle. Leaders need courage because leaders have enemies. Winston Churchill said, you've got enemies? Good. That means you've stood up for something sometime in your life. When you take a stand, you will have enemies. When you take a stand for something that matters. William Carey, the missionary to India, said, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of succeeding at things that don't matter. Things that don't really require courage to do. Things that don't really count, that don't really make a difference. See, in a fallen world, you cannot do anything worth doing without facing opposition, without coming under attack in some form or fashion. The only people who never come under attack, the only people who never get attacked are people who don't do anything worth attacking. They don't do anything that that, that critical. They don't get criticized because they don't do anything critical. They don't do anything worth criticizing. The leader is the one who is in the arena fighting the good fight. I love the words of Teddy Roosevelt uh, along these lines. He said, it's not the critic who counts, nor it's not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Those are, I think, stirring words uh, from Teddy Roosevelt. I like the way that C.S. Lewis puts it in his uh, Chronicles of Narnia, the way he describes Narnian kingship. Uh, and you see what it means, what it looks like to be a courageous, a courageous leader. This is how he describes it. For this is what it means to be king, to be first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as must be now and then in bad years, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. That's what it means to be a leader. First in, last out, laughing the loudest. That kind of stout-hearted, courageous leadership is what we need. It's what the church needs. What is this courage that God calls us to? C.S. Lewis says that courage is not one particular virtue. It is the testing point of all the virtues. That's just what God is saying to Joshua here. There is no virtue. There is no love, no faithfulness, no integrity, no holiness without courage because all of those virtues will draw the ire and fire of the enemy. Timidity has made many a man completely ineffective. Otherwise, good men rendered completely ineffective for lack of courage. Again, cowardice is why the Israelites failed to enter the land a generation 
earlier. Courage means we go forward to fight the good fight. And yes, it means we will be shot at. The way you know you're flying over the right target is if you're getting shot at. It takes courage to lead, courage to do what is right, to stand face to face with those who oppose God's truth. Pastor Gill and all of us, fine, we'll find from time to time, we have to choose between courage and comfort, doing what is courageous and doing what is comfortable. We often have to do what is courageous instead of what is comfortable. It's been said, courage is fear that has said its prayers. There's real fear, but you've looked to God. John Wayne said, courage is being scared to death, but saddling up anyway. G.K. Chesterton said, courage is a contradiction in terms. It means a strong desire to live, taking the form of a readiness to die. Andrew Jackson said, one man with courage makes a majority. And that's because courage spreads. It's contagious. As Joshua leads with courage, that courage will spread to the people. To lead God's people, you have to be courageous because leadership is hard. You've got to have thick skin because you're going to get beat up and shot at a lot. The pattern of leadership, which must become the pattern of the whole community, is that of courageous obedience. That's what God is saying to Joshua. Lead with courage and the people will follow with courage. This is a message we really need to hear because unfortunately today, if there's anything that characterizes the church in our day, I think it's cowardice. You see very little courage in the church today. You see a lot of cowardice, the church giving in, the church trying so hard to be cool and to fit in with the world and therefore caving and compromising. You know, so we'll only talk about those sins that our culture's elites give us permission to talk about. And so the cultural elites say that you can talk about the sin of racism, so we'll do that. But they don't want us talking about sexual sins, whether it be homosexuality or abortion or fornication. So we won't talk about those things because those things would get us in trouble with the culture. No, God says to Joshua, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Joshua is to meditate on God's word. He's to keep it in his heart. Why? So he can keep it on his mouth. He's to meditate on it day and night so he can speak God's word to others. And speaking God's word is always an act of courage. It's always an act of defiance. God's truth always arouses opposition from the world. And so Jimmy needs courage so he can speak God's word to you. And you need courage so you can hear God's word. And we all need courage so we can obey God's word. So we can live the kinds of lives God wants us to live. It would not do any good for Israel to go out and conquer Canaan if the Israelites were going to end up living like the Canaanites anyway. Now, we know, sadly, that is what happened in a lot of Israel's history. The conquest ended up doing no good because they ended up living just like the Canaanites that they had driven out. If we're going to be cowards and adopt the ways of the world, then there really is no point. The church has lost its whole reason for existing. 
It takes courage for the church to be the church. Courage for the church to stand against the world. It takes courage for the church to be faithful as God's people. And so God says to all of us, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Finally, there is the promise of God's presence. This is uh, shows up a couple places in the passage. God says he will be with Joshua. He says, I will not fail you or forsake you. That's how the passage ends in verse 9. This is another reason to be strong and courageous, because you know the Lord, your God, is with you wherever you go. God's presence with us is the key to everything. There was a time earlier in Israel's history with Moses where Moses said to God, we don't want to go unless you're going to go with us because without you, we can't do anything. We must have you present with us. Without God, we can do nothing. With God, when God is with us, all things are possible. Well, here's God's promise. God is with us. He is the Emmanuel God, the God who is with his people. Great leadership begins with knowing the presence of God. Living in the presence of God, knowing God is present. Because God is with us, we want to do right at all times, even in the small things. Thinking about the presence of God with you makes you want to do what is right all the time. So often God asks us to do small things before he gives us big tasks. He wants us to be faithful in the little things before he gives us the big things to do. Think about David. Right after David is anointed as king in 1 Samuel, his first job, he gets anointed as king. His first job then is to take cheese and crackers to his brothers on the battlefield. He's been anointed. Surely he's going to have some big job to do, right? No, he just gets this little task. He's got to take the cheese and crackers to his brothers. But that little act of obedience paves the way for the big act of obedience in defeating Goliath. He was faithful in the little job, and so God gave him a much bigger job to do. Same with Joshua. Joshua was faithful in the small role he had on a team of spies, so now he gets the much bigger role of leading the whole nation in conquest. Pastor Gill was faithful, I, I can tell you, he was faithful as an assistant pastor at Trinity Presbyterian Church, and so now God's given him the much bigger role of leading his own church, his own congregation, making him the lead pastor here. God is with us, so we must do what is right. But God's presence impacts us in another way. It doesn't just challenge us and spur us to faithfulness. It's also a comfort to us to know God is with us. The promise of God's presence with Joshua reminds us of Jesus' promise to be with his disciples in the Great Commission. Think about the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus says to his disciples gathered on the mountain, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And then he commands them, he says, therefore go and make the nations my disciples, baptizing them and teaching them all I have commanded, for I am with you even to the end of the age. What makes the Great Commission work? How do we know we can go forward and disciple the nations? Because Jesus is with us. And the power of Jesus unleashed through the ministry of his people, is an unstoppable force. Now we might ask, how is 
God with us? How is Jesus with us? How do we experience the empowering presence of Jesus in our midst? Well, he's with us in his word as it is read and preached. He's actually speaking to us as his word is read and preached. He's present with us. He's present with us in the waters of baptism and in the bread and wine of the Eucharist. He's present with us in worship whenever two or three or more are gathered together. He's with us in each other, through each other, as we minister to each other as fellow members of Christ's body. Christ ministers his presence to each of us through our fellow Christians. Wherever you have Jesus' word and Jesus' sacraments and Jesus' people, there you have Jesus as well. In fact, it's really interesting. You start to look through the book of Joshua. A lot of the battles that Joshua fights actually end up looking a lot more like worship services. This is how God is present to his people. He's present in the midst of our worshiping assembly. It's really his presence with us that is the bow that ties everything else in this passage together. His presence with us is the gospel. It's what makes everything else work. Because he is with us, we can know his promises will be fulfilled. He's not an absent God who says he will do great things and then withdraws. No, he promises to do great things for us and through us. And then he is with us to see that they are accomplished. Because he's with us, we know we can fulfill the pattern of bold and courageous obedience he calls us to. Because he is with us, we know we have nothing to fear and we cannot fail. Your church is going through a time of change. And while I anticipate a very smooth transition from the ministry of Pastor Wilding to the ministry of Pastor Gill, change is still hard for any church to endure. We like things to stay the same. We like that kind of stability. But we need to understand moments of change are also opportunities for God to manifest his presence to us in new ways. Moments of change are opportunities for us to see God's presence and God's work in our midst in new ways. It's not the ministry of man who really holds your church together in the end. It's the presence of God. God himself is the glue that ties you all together. The presence of God's love and God's holiness. It's God's faithfulness that holds you together as a church. God is the one who sees us through these times of change. God is the one who holds our churches together in times of change. God is the one who keeps us faithful, who keeps us growing, who keeps us going God is present with you in all his grace and all his goodness. God is present with you to forgive your failures and to equip you for service, to enable you to grow and mature as a people. God's presence is manifest to you and faithful leaders he has given to you to represent his own rule and his own ministry in your midst. God's presence is manifest in your congregation as God uses you in one another's lives and in your wider community. God is with us. And that is our hope. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words that you have given to us through Joshua. May these words charge Jimmy this day. May they charge all of us. Father, this is a day of great thanksgiving for the past, a day of great remembrance and thanksgiving for the ministry of Pastor Wilding. It's also a day of great expectation of 
uh, eagerly looking forward to what you will do in the future through Pastor Gill's ministry here. Father, may you fill these leaders, may you fill all of us with strength and with courage that we might obey you, that we might serve you faithfully. We thank you for your promise to be with us. Would you show your presence in our midst? This we pray in Christ's name.